0: Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. We're going to continue on in our series um, in the Gospel of Mark for our time in the Word this morning. And so if you would come along with me, we'll turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 and look at a fascinating miracle um, that's really unlike anything else recorded in this Gospel from the power of our Lord Jesus And the title of this message is The Relentless Mercies of Jesus. So Mark chapter 5 is where we're at. Mark chapter 5. Let me ask you this at the outset, just a a question I think um, we often are asked, and something we often struggle struggle with, is just, do you have a difficult time asking for help understanding or or acknowledging your own weakness and you know in in the most common manifestation of it is usually just you know men asking for directions or you know men asking for help in Home Depot or or something like that where it's you know there's a certain amount of pride that keeps us asking for help from someone else but um, one particular thing that I personally struggle with is is just asking for help for my my own health. Um, I I often get periodic migraines, and Alyssa and I have spent enough time together for her to understand the telltale signs of it, and I'm never asking for help. I I don't want to acknowledge that I'm, I'm getting a migraine, but she's like, Jared, by the way, you're stuttering or Jared, like you can't, you seem to be squinting a lot or you can't form a thought or you seem to be in pain. And I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm totally fine. I'm fine. And she's like, just, just take something, take Excedrin, take some. And it's her, you know, jumping on it and understanding that I'm the person who d- cannot ask for help. In fact, our, our very second date um, together, I actually had a migraine, was refusing to tell her because it was, you know, I think it was just stress related and I hadn't eaten and I, we went to a Norms in, in Huntington Beach, very romantic, and we, I, I got up and I threw up, and I came back and I sat down, and I was like, "Yeah, I just kind of throw up, threw up, and she's like, "What? What are you talking?" And then, you know that, that was our second date, so that was her experience, but hey we're, I mean, we're still together. so That's just an example of her having to insert herself, understanding the telltale signs of, of one of my migraines. But in today's text, we see essentially kind of Jesus doing the same thing, pursuing someone who didn't necessarily ask for help. And he's kind of responding to an emergency call which no one made and helps out a man which apparently no one thought could be helped. And so in this story in which Jesus is casting out an unclean spirit given to us in the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 5, we'll see the great lengths to which he goes to perform a miracle animated by his own love and his own tender mercies. And that's why this title of this message is called The Relentless Mercies of Jesus. And so we'll read um, a part of this passage, actually most of the passage that we'll have today, Starting verses, uh, starting with verses 1 through 13, and we'll kind of see what, what story is being told right here. Verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and he begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So we gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So we have this explosive miracle, this explosive a story that's really unlike anything else we'll, we'll read in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark spends a little bit of extra time giving us the setup to the story and he kind of reminds us, kind of, of the story we just came off of a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Robert talked about the, the, the storm that Jesus calmed just a few verses before when they were crossing the sea. And so, as they come out of this previous storm, it's like Mark is kind of telling us they're going right into another kind of storm. But Mark spends a, an additional amount of time kind of rounding out this character, this man with this unclean spirit, telling us exactly what they find on these, or rather who they, the person they find on these shores, on this land. And so Mark gives us kind of more attention than the other Gospels who record the story to tell us about this case, because he's telling us, this is Mark, the, the writer of the Gospel, telling us this is a very special case of what God is doing. This is a special case that showcases something unique about the attributes and the goodness of God. So Mark gives a physical description, and then he kind of gives us a spiritual description, which is um, demonstrated in the exchange that Jesus has with this man. So first of all, look at kind of the physical attributes of this in verses 4 and 5. This man had been bound with chains. He lives among the tombs. He's so unruly that it says that he had often been bound with change, but he wrenched the change apart and he, he broke the shackles in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue. So in other words, we come after a point at which there was a period of time where they thought they could kind of subdue this man somehow. Obviously talking with him didn't work, so they just resorted to binding him in change so that he couldn't maybe hurt himself or other people. But people had Evidently given up because it didn't work. No one had the strength to actually overpower him. Really, there's, who, who else in the, in the Bible is like this man? But even though he seems to have exhibited kind of this superhuman strength, like he was some kind of superhero, really he, he was living, the Bible tells us right here, in a, in a subhuman way by the things he was doing. Verse five says that night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We see that his his freakouts, his his episodes were not um, kind of infrequent. Maybe it was once a week or something like that. Maybe it could have been a medicated no, no. It was a persistent thing. Round the clock, he exhibited this self-destructive behavior, and we we understand that he had even lost and cast off the basic human instinct of self-preservation. You know, even people, if they're, they're sick or, or they're mentally ill, they have some sense of self-preservation. But he had cast it off, and he was tormenting himself. He was cutting himself with stones. So what does he do with this enormous superhuman strength? He, it's it's self-destructive, and de- destructive, and he felt no restraints at all because he could not be restrained. So Mark paints for us this, this portrait of this man that's a complete deplorable, the, the man that's, um, it, he's in a completely kind of deplorable state, and he's even a state kind of characterized in Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets as an affront to God, as kind of, this is what the person outside of God's covenant kind of does. If you look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 4, God speaks about a rebellious people and he's accusing his own people of doing this, of behaving like people outside the covenant. And he says something significant in Isaiah 65, verse 4. He says, um, after saying, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. um, he, He says, those who sit in tombs Those who spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat, is in their vessels. And so we already saw just from reading the story the introduction of the pigs and the introduction and the the idea and the the place setting of the tombs that he's in. And we see that in in Jewish culture, really, this was an, an unclean person outside of God's covenant people. In fact, a lot of commentators, given the location of this particular miracle on the other side of the sea, a lot of commentators believe this man was actually not a Jew, but a Gentile, which seems to give Jesus less reason to go out and pursue him. As Jesus' ministry was primarily reaching a lot of Jewish people. Today, he might be characterized as maybe a schizophrenic. And I'm sure there are many, even um, modern Bible commentators commentators who say, well, was he really demon-possessed? Was there really a spiritual aspect? Maybe he was just misdiagnosed and he was exhibiting some kind of schizophrenic behavior or, or multiple personalities or something like that. But as demonstrated by the following verses, Christ was moved... To particular compassion toward this man because he understood and he perceived that there was a spiritual dimension to his oppression and to his sickness in this head. So we not only see the the spiritual aspect of this man's tortured state, but we see, uh, not, not only do we see a physical aspect, but we also see the spiritual aspect to this man's state. And we see that in the exchange that Jesus has with this man, starting in verse 7. Notice, the, it seems like this man first kind of initiated the contact, because that's what we saw in verse 2, that immediately, Mark likes the word immediately, they step, they're, they're met the man, and he said, The man says in verse 7, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. He says, I beg you, I plead with you, do not torment me. So as, we, as we've seen before in, in Mark chapters 1 and 3, the unclean spirit, the demonic spirit kind of identifies himself that he is an unclean spirit because he has the spiritual perception that he's facing and encountering the very Son of God. It was his own perception of Christ's deity and his kind of semi confession of it that kind of tells us yes this is a man who is demon possessed only demons have this unique understanding the bible kind of records for us so he calls jesus he he it's an amazing salutation jesus son of the most high god saying you are god above all god god above all pagan gods or hosts or any other power on earth but this is not a kind of a cry from the demon of, of confession and worship, as Pastor Robert has, has taught before in our, our studies in Mark, but it's kind of an announcement out of sheer terror. It's kind of like a, um, a involuntary shriek that, oh my gosh, like look who this is. It's God himself, and it's it's a cry of terror from the demon because he recognizes the authority that Christ has over him. Remember, um, James chapter 2, verse 19 tells us that the demons even believe in God and they tremble. They don't believe in God and, and are safe, but they believe in God and tremble. There are no atheists among demons. And so this conversation that he has, this exchange gets very informative and very kind of chilling very quickly because Jesus continues the conversation with this man. This seems to have gone on longer than any other casting out of demons that, that Jesus has done. And so Jesus continues this conversation with the man, maybe in, an, in a, trying to draw out who this man is, or maybe the humanity that's still in him. But this man, um, well, Jesus asks him, what is your name? It's It's like kind of casual, kind of not worried kind of question. And it's kind of interesting. But the... Strange answer is he says, my name is Legion. And you're like, okay, well, like his name is Legion. But in doing so, he gives his name, what he calls himself, but he also gives a descriptor of his state, his current state. The, the word Legion kind of meaning a a cohort of of soldiers, meaning that they are many. He's saying, I am a we. I, you know, I am a they. I am thoroughly and fully taken over by these demons. And the the implication of this, there's a lot of implications of this idea that he's inhabited by not one demon, but by thousands perhaps of demons, is that this kind of accounts for his supernatural strength, his erratic behavior, his lack of any kind of focused will, but also the boldness and the impudence that he's kind of showing to Jesus, though he knows he is the Son of God. But of course, as demonstrated for us on just a purely sad human level, it indicates just how fully this man was taken over by the demons. He's lost all control. And as we peel back, kind of, we we scratch the surface of this man's state, We peel back kind of from the physical lens and see his true spiritual state. We see that this is is a man not in a position of strength, not in a position of boldness and arrogance, but in a state of absolute helplessness. This is a spiritually destitute man fully under the power of the devil. But as we see after this kind of strange statement, we are legion for we are many, we see this realization on the part of the demons residing within that judgment is imminent for them. That Christ is here, and he has authority over them, being authority over all powers in heaven on earth. And so he recognizes, well, my judgment is coming because Christ is here. He can do whatever he wants to me. And so he implores him for something else. He says, not to send me, not to send them out of the country. Now this may be a euphemism to say not to send us into judgment or something like that. We're not exactly sure. But then he makes a strange request to be sent into the pigs. And so we kind of see this acted out. And again, the pigs are kind of a sign of of uncleanness, the uncleanness of the situation. And so strangely, and, and marvel. We kind of marvel at this, but Jesus kind of gave him permission to do this. In Mark chapter 5, verse 13, we see the miracle itself. This is the miracle. Jesus, with a word, you notice he didn't try to overpower him, he just did it with a simple word, exhibiting his strength and authority. He says, He gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down. Um, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they all drowned in the sea. So 2,000 pigs, which kind of shows us the, the amount of, of demons that, that inhabited the pigs, go and, and drown themselves into the sea. And so it's, can you imagine just kind of being on the, the countryside and just seeing the sight of 2,000 pigs are just rushing into the sea and, and dying right now? And there's a lot of, kind of, there's a lot that's been made out of this. You know, people look at it as like, what does this mean? You know, what does this mean about, about animal rights? And can pigs be, no, can pigs be inhabited by, by demons? And and all these strange questions about the the nature of this, but it, it, though, that kind of, Incisive, um, minute kind of detail looking, it kind of misses the, the point, because at first, it looks like these demons have successfully bargained with Jesus, "Ha! you didn't destroy this. You didn't destroy us. We, we got sent into the pigs." But then you realize that Jesus is just simply consigning them to their destruction, anyway, that He's delivering them to destruction. And this is not just simply, you know, this, this is a unique miracle this, because this is a miracle that caused necessary damage. There, there's kind of collateral damage to this, but it's not like I, I was thinking about this and, you know, in the later Avengers movies where it's like, it starts to get all political and it's like, oh, you know, there's collateral damage. You know, we saved the world, but people are still mad about Kosovo and Budapest because we destroyed buildings and stuff like that. And like the kind of reality sets in of like, sorry, we destroyed these things. Is it kind of that what's happening here where like Jesus is like, oh, you know, I have to I have to pay for these pigs, and there's kind of this this paperwork, it's it's a headache, and you know, it's it's a political thing. No, I think what Mark is actually trying to tell us is that this emergence of these pigs or the the rushing headlong of these pigs to destroy themselves into the sea is kind of emblematic and a sign of a larger spiritual lesson. It's a sign of the devil's defeat and his doom at the coming of God's kingdom. Remember that when Christ comes on the scene in Mark, he, he comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, essentially preaching the gospel. But remember that there's a Destructive aspect to the ministry of Christ on earth. First John chapter three, um, the end of verse eight tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the devil's kingdom, destroying the devil's kingdom and bringing in a new kingdom of God. Elsewhere, Jesus likens himself Um, in the act of casting out demons as someone breaking and entering into a house. Isn't that amazing? Matthew chapter 12 verse 29 says this, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus was saying in this exchange in Matthew with the Pharisees where he, they were kind of griping at his casting out of demons. Jesus is saying, I'm here to bind and to subdue and to send Satan to judgment, to bring order into the chaos he has created. And that's kind of what we see here. We see the destructive aspect of Christ's work. And I think I'm so thankful that Christ is here to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the things that have ruined people's lives, to, des- to get rid of sin sin addiction in our own life, things that are heading us in the wrong direction, there is a destructive aspect of Christ's work, not only in salvation, but in our own sanctification, that he destroys the things that we ought not to do. He destroys the sin in our life, and he helps us to be more and more like him. So the purpose that Jesus has in casting out demons is not simply the casting out of this demon itself, it's not that, oh, you know, I don't have a demon anymore. I'm good. You know, the, the, the cancer has been taking away. No, it's emblematic of his larger purpose where Jesus was not only dispossessing him of a demon, but possessing this man and claiming for himself and putting this man, as we'll see, into his right mind. Um, Frederick Leahy, he, uh, is, uh, he, he's a pastor who's since been to be with the Lord. He has a great, he's probably the best book on, on demonology called Satan Cast Out. I recommend it, but he says, the miracles of our Lord were never divorced from his teaching in general. And there is no reason to think that he, Jesus, ever cast out demons without at the same time preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus taught elsewhere that if if you cast out someone's demon, And you don't have anything stronger within, the demon's just gonna fly around the earth and come back and re inhabit. And the the last state is worse than the first. In other words, if you don't have someone actually controlling your life, then someone is gladly stepping into that vacuum. And typically, that someone in this world is Satan, who is the God of this world. Verse 14 starts to give us the aftermath, kind of what's going on in this situation. And it tells us the reaction of the people who witnessed this event. Verse 14 says this, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Really, as, just as surprising as the rest of the story is the reaction to the miracle that had happened. This man who had been bound by Satan for who knows how long, whose maybe his days were numbered, gets Satan cast out of him. And these people come out and they're afraid and they want Jesus to leave. Maybe it's because of the, the expense of the pigs that died and they didn't like that that happened. Maybe it's just that the status quo was interrupted, but it's definitely a sign overall of the blindness induced by their own unbelief. But it's really at the end of this story that we get the profound lesson that Mark is trying to teach us about this miracle, and the lesson is spoken by Jesus himself, and we've just read it in verse 19. Jesus says to the man, The man wants to go with Jesus. He says, let me come and be with you. I want to spend time, maybe be your disciple. But Jesus actually doesn't let him. He doesn't give him permission, but rather he tells him, he gives him a commission to do something else. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He wants the man to share about God's great mercies. And immediately, as as the story is being told to us, the man acknowledges and spreads around that Jesus is the Lord who had mercy on him. And that's the story he tells to his friends and family. That's the story he shares when he returns home. And maybe he surprised the people in his own household who said, what happened to you? You were absolutely oppressed by demons and now you're in your right mind. And so we're left with a lesson about God's, abundant love and mercy. There's a lot of things we can pull out of this story. We can talk about the great strength that Christ has. We can talk about Christ's authority and his deity, but it seems the thing we're called to remember in this particular passage is the fact that God's amazing works, the the incredible miracles that God does on behalf of people to help people are motivated by his own love. And his own mercy toward people. God can do what he wants. God is God. No one can tell God what to do. And when he acts, he acts out of his own goodness, his own perfect nature. And when he heals people, it's out of his great compassion and his great heart and his, yes, his mercy. What do I mean when I'm talking about God's mercy? Well, there are a lot of different definitions, of course, of mercy, but essentially it's God's warm compassion to people in a weak state. Look at the example of mercy we see in places, especially in the Psalms, but we can look at even Psalm 103, verses uh, 13 through 14. We're told this, the psalmist says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame... He remembers that we are dust. For you to show pity to someone, it's usually because they're in a helpless state and you're, you are the str- stronger person in the situation and you have the means to help them. And so, you know, often that way to help them starts with an act of pity. If you don't pity them, you're not going to stop in your tracks and, and help them in any way. And so that's kind of the picture that God has for us. He sees us as very weak people. He sees us as pitiful people. Essentially, and that's our true state, but God jumps in and he helps us out of his mercy. I love what um, Dr. Joel Beakey said. He says that God is merciful means that he is not insensitive to our weaknesses and troubles, but responds to our miseries with tender pity. God is not the God of deism or, or some other impersonal God who doesn't really care about these things. He's not some, you know, cosmic natural force that's impersonal, but he has a heart that moves with pity on people who are in a weak state, especially people that recognize their weak state. But as Jesus perceived about this particular man, it wasn't his strength that he noticed, but the fact that he was weak, he was overpowered, and he could not overcome, and nor can we overcome by our own own strength, the strength of the devil, which is superior to our own human strength. We don't know what this man did to be possessed with so many demons. We actually don't know if he did anything. There's a lot of speculation. Oh, he must have done something. Well, we, we don't know simply, but we know enough from the story that he was in great need. He was a sinner, yes, and he was in great need of God's mercies, of God to break through in some way and come and save him. God, through his mercy, changed this man, and he brought out his humanity itself. And so we see the mercies of God, the tender loving kindness through the hands of Christ in very distinct ways, in three particular ways that I do want to point out to, to you of God's mercy and how Jesus showed mercy on a a very human level to this man. Number one, Jesus sought this man out. Jesus sought him out. Notice that this seems to be the reason that he crossed the sea itself and they braved even a storm. He wanted to go and see this man. In verse uh, uh, 35 of Mark chapter 4, it says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And that must have been in the mind of Christ, go to that man. Because really, after he heals him, the people don't want him to stay anymore and they just leave. And so this was the goal. Christ says, okay, I, I did what I came to do. So he sought this man out. Although the text tells us that the, you know, immediately, as it said on the shore, that the demon possessed man came across them. It's really just the opposite that Jesus sought This man out. And isn't it true for our own state that Jesus is the one who's who's seeking us out? We don't actually pursue God, He's the one who's pursuing us. And although everyone else had given up on Him, even though He seemed to be outside of God's covenant people, God saw something in Him. He wanted to save Him. Secondly, Jesus preserved His life. No, just his very literal life. We can only imagine the the end this man would have faced if Jesus had not come to his rescue. Who knows, maybe he had hours or days left before he himself threw himself into the sea and ended everything. He was a danger, of course, not to uh, just others, but danger primarily to himself. And there are times in which The the salvation that God brings to us really saves our very life. Psalm 103 verse 4 says that God is someone who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. There are so many instances, and I could tell you and you could tell uh, me, about people you know that if God had not gotten a hold of them, they can say with some assurance, I would be dead or, or I would be in jail. And jail would be a mercy because maybe, you know, the the law structure in place would have prevented them from doing something ridiculous. But that's a lifestyle that God delivers them from. And by doing so, very likely delivers them from death. That's a great mercy of God when he saves us, when he steps into our world. And lastly, the particular instance of mercy that Jesus shows this man is Jesus put him in his right mind. Of course, you know, not being demon-possessed gets you a long way to being put in your right mind and to thinking straight, but I can't even imagine the trauma just as normal human mind would have endured. But it reminds us of the very human nature of Christ to come alongside us, to sympathize with our weaknesses, to counsel us, and to bring us back to a state of peace, to speak great peace to us. When people found him, he was in his right mind, and that was because of what Jesus had done for him. And isn't that you know, true in our own case? Not only just in the act of salvation, but just on our, in our worries. Christ has the power often to give us a supernatural, inexplainable peace and to put us in our own right mind. But notice again what this man ultimately grasped, just to loop back to it, how much Jesus had done for them as recorded in, as re- what's recorded for us in, in 20. That's, that's his lesson. That's the message he wants to share, how much Jesus had done for them, which for us today and this morning is a great doctrinal truth, namely that, that God's great mercies are incarnated in the work of Christ. In other words, when God wants to show us his love, his tenderness, his kindness, he sent us Christ. He sent us Christ who was fully God, who took on the skin and the flesh of man and showed us the personality of God, showed us what God is like, showed us his endless mercies. It's all in the person of Christ. It's kind of a hyperbolic statement, but I love what the Puritan Richard Sibb says. He says, Christ is all of mercy. Christ is nothing but mercy. And that's kind of what Christ is for us when we come and we realize our, our great weakness Our great deplorable spiritual state, our need to be repossessed, essentially, by the Lord Jesus. And so it's important for us to take away three last things, and I'll close with these. What do we learn from the story that we can take to heart today? Well, number one, and I think quite manifest in this story, is that Satan only destroys. John chapter 10 verse 10 says this, and you're probably familiar with this verse. Jesus is speaking of Satan and he calls him a thief in this particular way. He says the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. On the contrary, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But really this is the end goal of demonic possession. You know, movies maybe kind of dramatize demonic possession and, you know, it's like, it's maybe cool and it's somewhere seductive and it's attractive and it'll give you special powers. But the key that the scriptures tells us is this, anything Satan wants to do in your life is necessarily going to be self, um, dis- dis- self-destructive for you. It's going to be, the end goal is for you to be destroyed, whether or not someone's actually demon-possessed or not. Whenever we're tempted with sin, whenever we recognize, oh, we're tempted with this particular sin to to go here to say this or to do that, the end goal for Satan to get his foothold into your life is destruction. He doesn't care, you know, if if you're a Christian in this way. If you are a Christian, it's impossible, by the way, for you to be... um, possessed by demons. The the Bible is very clear on that because the Holy Spirit resides in us and that's what we'll see in just a little bit. But the end goal of him tempting you, and this is what we all face even as Christians, is destruction. The goal of temptation and the goal of Satan is simply to steal, kill, and destroy. And in contrast, number two, God shows us great mercy. Satan doesn't show mercy. Satan has no capacity for mercy. In fact, it's the weak people. It's the people who can't help themselves that he most prays on. The Bible tells us that Satan is a roaring lion, and he wants to seek someone to devour. Satan prays on the weak, but God loves the weak. God comforts the weak. God has mercy on the weak and realize again that this man wasn't in a position of strength, but Jesus saw that he was in a position of weakness. And we are the same way in our natural state if we'll actually see it. If you've never accepted, if you never believed on faith in Christ, understand that you are in a terrible, weak position. I've often even heard people, though, who, who call themselves Christians, or, or you make a profession of faith to say, oh, you know what, you know, I made a deal with God, kind of like he's my friend, we're on equal terms. I, I said, God, you know, what? why don't you help me out with this, and I'll come to church on Sundays, and we'll, we'll kind of go in a back and forth. I think that completely misunderstands the nature and the relationship that God has with us. God is our great superior. God is the one who Gives us life. We are dead, essentially, and God gives us life. We are in great need of God's Spirit to give us life. That's why we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, Paul is speaking and he says, If the Spirit of Him Who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. What Paul is saying here is that our true need is not, you know, to be, have bad things cast out of us. Not only to have, you know, demons cast out of uh, of someone, but our true need is to be indwelt and given life, spiritual life, by the Holy Spirit, without which we're headed on a path of destruction in hell apart from God. Because we are simply trapped in our own sin and we cannot save ourselves. In contrast, those who believe on Christ have the indwelling of the Spirit and the life of the Spirit. And so Paul says, in this way, we are debtors to God. We cannot repay Him for the great gift that He has given to us because God approached us with salvation in our weakness. God removed through Christ the curse of sin and death. He cast out sin and death from our own lives when he believe on, when we believe on Him, things we could not do ourselves. And number three, just on a practical level, our last takeaways, We ought to share God's mercy with others. This particular miracle in the Gospel of Mark is different from all Jesus' previous healings and and casting out of demons. Why? Because Jesus told this man to go tell people. Remember in the few chapters earlier, Jesus would heal someone and say, oh, don't say anything about this. And usually the reason is that he didn't want, you know, Jesus lived in a very politically volatile environment and he didn't want people to misunderstand or or misannounce, Hey, this guy is this. And people would have bad understandings with him, but he did not do that with this man. And he actually said, go tell others about what I did for you. There's a few reasons for this. One of which may be that in this entire region, Jesus was just kicked out. And so, This man was God's representative experiencing God's true grace, and he was authorized and commissioned by Jesus to share about him. But even though Jesus gives this man a specific charge, it's really, by extension, a charge for you and for me today and anyone who has benefited and experienced the mercy of Christ to simply go home to your family and friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And by this, I, I mean two things, of course, to, for us to tell others about God's mercy. To tell others the, the mercy that God has had on us. The fact that we were once dead in our sins and God came and, and saved us. We heard the gospel preached and we believed and God saved us. But secondly, there's another aspect to this is, and it's simply to show mercy to others. People who are in a weak state people who can't help themselves, people who have practical needs. It ought to move our heart just as it moved God's in this particular case. And in many cases, as, as he told the man, it starts at home. You know, maybe it starts in our own home place and with our own family, with our own community who need to hear our story. And with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this great miracle And we're thankful for this particular glimpse of your Son who has exhibited great mercy on this man. And it just reminds us of the larger way in which you show mercy to us. Lord, in our sorrow, in our weakness, in our destitute spiritual state that you breathe life into us. I pray for anyone in here that does not yet know you that they would recognize their hopeless state without you, and they would call out to you and grasp onto you and affix themselves to you in faith so that they might experience the mercies of God. Lord, we thank you for your precious love in our life. We thank you for intervening in our life and seeking us out, and we ask that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N.church. Thanks for listening.